Thank you, Mark. Thanks for being here. At first, I couldn't see music where I thought, oh, is this your arrangement? So this is not your arrangement. No, it's my arrangement. It's your arrangement of an arrangement. Well, thank you very much. It was very, it was very relaxing and peaceful and contemplative. Thank you so much. And thank you for being here, uh, both in the room and those who are watching online. Tonight is our final session in our journey as we've been going through Judges, sessions with Judges. Colorful characters and, wow, powerful tales. And tonight, as I was joking with a few people just a few minutes ago, I think it may be the most disturbing story in all of the Bible. I mean, it's really a tough one to wrestle with. There are parts of it I don't even want to read tonight out loud. I just want to summarize it and tell you, go read it on your own. Uh, but we're going to wrestle with, well, why is it here? It's still in my canon. It's, it's still in this biblical canon. Um, what are we as post-Easter believers, how are we to read this and understand this? And we certainly uh, should be wrestling with it as well. Uh, but before we do that, let's pause for just a moment and I'll remind you, we began Sunday morning. Um, on Sunday mornings, we're doing this series of the, these um, the Psalms that are part of the Easter season uh, as we're moving towards Pentecost, but we also introduced the Deterra bags and revisiting the opioid crisis and what our role is in our community, things that we can do. And so we have a short video to show you about that as well. And then I'll invite Wayne to come up and join me for just a moment. I had a bunch of knee surgeries done. And I had been taking seven, 800 milligrams of opioids a day. Eventually, finding more opioids was all I was concerned about. I realized at that time I needed help. And in recovery, I found my purpose. Addiction is a disease of isolation and loneliness. There is a way out. You don't have to do this alone. Right. If you or someone you, you know is struggling, there is hope. Recovery is okay, all right. You bet. Great. What do we need to know about what's happening now within our own community, our church, and uh, what's coming up that we can be a part well, of? Well, we're trying to just focus again as a church community on what's going on with opioids and the crisis that is spreading and getting worse. And it's been made worse because of isolation that's happened uh, with the pandemic that we're dealing with. So it's all tangled up together. Uh, we're going to have. Uh, a speaker on Sunday morning, uh, a doctor who has been, uh, it works in treatment, but also has been a victim mm -hmm. of opioid addiction. Those uh, can be with us on Sunday yep. morning, Dr. Lloyd. Uh, and then we'll have a couple of Wednesday night sessions coming up uh, Wednesday, this coming and the fifth, I think. So the next two Wednesday nights, we're going to focus on op opioid addiction, uh, what you can do if a member of your family, um, maybe it's yourself you're struggling with, right. and what we can do as a church community to be a part of that. To give you some real good information and tools to use. Will that also include the Narcam training, the or Narcan is that a different? will be on the 5th, May 5th, on Wednesday night. So For those yes. of you who don't know that, that is, a, that is a drug that could be administered to someone who has overdosed on an opioid, and it is incredible the lives that it has saved. And if you are part of that training, you will receive a free Narcam kit. Is that correct? That's right. And you can get that kit by being present in the sanctuary when we have the training or by uh, uh, 
registering for the training online. Okay. And then you'll be able to you also get an Narcan kit. So we're trying to make that available which is both which ways. is amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank right. you very Thank much. You, Wade. The next two Wednesday nights, wonderful. Well, tonight covers the final five chapters of the book of Judges. Now, there's no way we can read through all five chapters of the book of Judges. And if you haven't yourself become a Bible reader, you probably haven't read these chapters. These aren't chapters that are typically chosen on a Sunday morning. These aren't chapters that certainly aren't chosen usually in Sunday school classes or vacation Bible school. And you'll see as we get into some of these, which already has piqued your interest, like, oh, I need to read these chapters. Uh, Clinton McCann is an Old Testament scholar. He calls these five chapters complete deterioration and terror. And in reality, they are revisiting the legacy of Gideon and the legacy of Samson and go, what happens now? So this immediately follows the death of Samson and what happens with that Philist, the Philistines that are gathered there in the temple in that moment. We pick up the story right after that. But this is about the legacy of moving people away from following God to this self-guidance and also the legacy in particular with Gideon of reinstituting, reallowing, and encouraging uh, idolatry and worshiping other idols, but it got, it just gets so so dark and so so violent. It's just tough to decide exactly how we want to deal with it. I do want to read to you a paragraph. Um, there's a biblical scholar. Her name is Phyllis Tribble. Now, she can be a little edgy, uh, but that's also one of the contributions that she's given to us. I want to begin the study tonight by reading the way she introduces a study she did on this passage. And then I want to revisit her words at the very end. So this is what she writes. The cast of characters is predominantly male, a Levite, his attendant, a father, an old man, and a group of men. Of the two females, a concubine is central, a daughter receives scant attention. All these people are nameless. The men speak, even the attendant, but the women say nothing. Today we will travel with one woman in particular, the concubine, and it will not be a pleasant journey. So I direct your attention, if you do not have a, a Bible in front of you, we will go and we will read this first chapter that introduces it. And, and it seems to be, it's almost like it's, it's, there are two epilogues to the book of Judges. There's this story in chapter 17, and then when we get to chapter 19, there's another story that's loosely linked to it, but both of them seem to be exploring some similar themes. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and even spoke it in my hearing, that silver is in my possession. I took it, but now I will return it to you. Now that's, that's the first we have of this family. There's, no, there's nothing before this. There's no story before this. It's just boom. Here's the story. If you go back and look at the end, chapter 16, Samson dies, and then boom, we have this story. So we, we, we don't have her name. We don't have the context. Uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. It is interesting. That's the same amount that's paid to Delilah 
So there is a linking, at least with that number, with the previous story, which Hebrews like to do in some of these ancient stories. Uh, we don't know what this is for. We don't know if this is her retirement plan. We don't know. All, but it is interesting. She has uttered a curse. Someone has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver, which sounds like a lot of silver to me. She has uttered a curse. Her son has heard this curse. Maybe it doesn't bother you if someone puts a curse on you but remember the world in which they live and we said as we read these ancient stories we have to let them be uh, the people of their time period we have to let them they of their culture of their time of their experience we, we can't move them into our time period we're trying to build the bridge back to them to understand them they're not trying to understand us and the story that I would use sometimes when I was teaching uh, my first teaching experience we were just talking about Palm Beach Atlantic University uh, down in, in West Palm Beach and uh, I was supervising some students they were writing a thesis for their degrees and there was a man who had moved from Haiti and he had moved to South Florida and and he was working in the communications industry but he was also a pastor and he wrote his thesis on the fear of voodoo in the Haitian Christian community. I still have a copy of it on myself. It is fascinating. The, it's, it's about 60 pages long. Uh, and I learned more about voodoo and curses and witch doctors than I ever did watching Netflix. It's fascinating. And here's the interesting thing. So uh, these folks have, have grown up with one culture. Now they have moved to the United States Many of them have now also become Christians, but they are still bringing part of their cultural experience into the church. And much of that fear is there. So if someone is angry at you within that subculture, that's part of South Florida at that time. Well, if someone's angry at you, then they can hire someone to put a curse on you. Well, what are you going to do now that someone's going to put a curse on you? And it's really just fascinating to read that, to talk about the fear that they had. And now they felt like they need to get someone to put a counter curse on them. And all this is costing money. And all of this is involving rich, witch, witch doctors. And this is what they're wrestling with in their churches, which made me feel better about the church I was in. Uh, and, and I thought about it. You know, if you want to hire, if you're upset at me because I've said something, and you want to hire a witch doctor to put a curse on me, go right ahead. You know, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that. I'm not going to worry about that. Maybe I should. I'm not. I mean, that's just not the way I function. That's not our culture. function. just, I'm, I'm not worried. I don't think there's anything you can do that's going to be stronger than the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying I always do the right thing. I'm just like, mm, I'm just not worried about that. It's just interesting right off the bat, just look at some of the subtext in this story, the assumptions they have about God and the way they even use Yahweh. So typically in the book of Judges where you see, for example, uh, in verse two, Lord, that's, that's Hebrew, that's Yahweh. And, and notice how it, it will focus on, you know, God, God must have power and authority, but then they're back to, uh, they're back to, an, an idol they're back to making an idol uh, they're back to trying to manipulate God it's f it's really interesting and it's easy for us to condemn them but how quickly we also want to manipulate and control God within in our own prayers and our own lives as well so anyway the son has heard there's a curse 
And he evidently is feeling both guilty for stealing the money, and I think there's something going on here with the curse as well. And so he says, look, I took it, and I'll give it back to you. And his mother said, may my son be blessed by Yahweh. So now it's, it's and I think that should be taken as kind of a counter curse. That now I've got to undo that curse, and now it's a blessing that goes on. May my son be blessed by, by Yahweh. Then he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I consecrate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make an idol of cast metal. Like, mm, we got so close. You know, it's like, mm, we're, we're, we're almost there. Yeah. Uh, so when he returned the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith and he made it into an idol of cast metal. And it was in the house of Micah. This man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and a teraphim. So an ephod, we think that's something that you would wear, a teraphim that would go on top of that, and installed one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their, in their own eyes. When you go back and read through the end of Judges, and I promise you by the time we get to the end of this, you will say, I must go back and read through the end of Judges. Even if you wait and do it Sunday morning because you think the sermon is boring go ahead sit there and read through but that verse 6 just watch how many times a version of verse 6 appears in the last five chapters of Judges the writer wants you to get this straight because it's also I think going to introduce what comes after this in those days there was no king in Israel all the people did what was right in their own eyes including now he's got his own idol He's got his own priestly uniform. Now he takes one of his own sons and says, you are now my priest. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the clan of Ju uh, of, in the clan of Judah. He was a Levite residing there. And if you haven't been around much Old Testament, Levite, the priestly clan. Okay. This man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to live wherever he could find a place. He came to the house of Micah in the hill country of Ephraim to carry on his work. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he replied, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to live wherever I can find a place. Then Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a set of clothes, and your living. Which doesn't seem like a great deal, when I put that in the context of 1,100 pieces of silver and the idol is now 200 pieces of silver to make the idol, or maybe I should just be reading this as, wow, that's a very expensive idol. How many years would it take him to pay for that? The Levite agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because the Levite has become my priest. And just chew on that one for a while. Now I know I have Yahweh on my side. Not only do I have a priest, I have a Levite from Judah who's now my personal priest hmm, to go along with my silver idol <laughs> Now I have God under control. 
now everything is going to be fine and you can see the problems with all of that and it's easy for us to look at that and and to laugh at it and to make fun of it and to go how how could he even think this yeah and just think about some of our bargaining with God think about some of our prayers with God um think you ever prayed, ever pray for something? You absolutely love someone and you're concerned about them and you just start listing off to God all the wonderful things this person has done. Yeah. You ever quoted scripture to God just in case God forgot what's in the Bible? <laughs> That's one of my favorite moves, yeah. <laughs> in case you forgot, you said, yeah. Uh, I don't know quite how God feels about that one. But all of those, it's, it's out of our own pain and out of our own fear and out of our own hopes and out of our home dreams. It's out of our humanity, which is happening here. But part of the story is just how far they have drifted from what we thought they got with Moses, what we thought they got in the Exodus, what we thought they got with the law, the expectations. I've set you free from, from Pharaoh. Now let me show you how to stay free live like this and and they're not there Uh, so that's that's the end of Judges chapter 17 and that's the good part of the story and then it really just starts falling apart Um, there's a nomadic tribe Dan uh, and now this goes back and connects with some stuff in Joshua and the tribe of Dan never settled in the territory that they were given Part of it is how close it was to some other people. Part of it was the work that was involved. Part of it was the danger. Part, so they've never quite settled into the territory where they were supposed to settle in. So they're still, they're nomadic, they're moving around and they are looking for a place. And it happens to be the place they are now scouting out is the place where Micah is in this hill country of Ephraim. And so they send five scouts ahead to kind of check things out. And they check out the place where Micah is and Ephraim, they actually stay there at one point in the story. They check out the territory around and they come back to the leaders in Dan and they go, you are not gonna believe what we have found. These people are wealthy, they are prosperous, the farming, the farmland is incredible. They live like the Sidonians, which I'm not quite sure what that means, but the Sidonians evidently have it going on. They live like the Sidonians, but they're nowhere near. There's nobody around. They don't have any allies. They're so remote where they are. We can take this, and they even use this language, the Lord has given us this land. It is amazing in these final chapters how quickly they resort to violence over and over again. So they are on their way to conquer this area and these five scouts who have already been, they go to Micah's place and all the troops are waiting at the gate at the entryway to the home where Micah is and, uh, and, and they go in and they take the ephod and the teraphim and they're taking the idol as well. And the priest stops them and says, what are you doing? And they go, we're, we're taking it. Why don't you come with us? Wouldn't it be better to be a priest for a whole tribe than, for, than a priest to just one family? And this unnamed Levite says, 
well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> and so he now goes with them and they go into battle and, and, and it's, it's, it's a bloody war and they do take over. They conquer this area. <sighs> so that gets us into, that gets us through chapter 18 where all is stolen. Micah, by the way, finds out, uh, just, to, just to end the story in chapter 18, Micah finds out and goes after them. And when he catches up to them, he sees that he is greatly outnumbered and just writes off the loss and he goes back home. And that's it. That's, that's the end of that story. That's the end of that epilogue. And now we're moving into the next part of the story and we have a whole list of characters. There's another Levite. So th there's a connection in kind of this Hebrew mind in writing these stories. There's another Levite, but this is a different Levite. And he goes on a trip through the land around the hill country of Ephraim. And he takes an unnamed woman with him, and she is described as his concubine. Which is always difficult for us to quite try to um, translate into our world. So put the concubine in the context of a culture that allows polygamy. And yet consistently in the story, she is called a concubine, though there are a number of times in the story he is called her husband. So she is not called his wife. He is called her husband. She is labeled as a concubine. And even though, um, so typically we would think when we're reading in this culture, not just Hebrews, but reading this culture, think a second class wife. Think a second class citizen within this larger family structure that seems odd to us and, and unfair to us because it is. But also think now in terms of there's no description of any other wife. He is described as a Levite who has a concubine, but even the way the story unfolds, you keep asking, well, what is this relationship and, and what exactly is happening here? So uh, after a few months, uh, anyway, so, so they leave. She is from Bethlehem. They, they travel to this area where these stories are going to unfold. And then uh, she, there are two text traditions. One, and the one you will find in most of the translations that you have in modern translation is she gets angry at him and she goes home to her father in Bethlehem, okay? She gets angry, she goes home. There's one variations within text that runs through that says she is unfaithful to him and goes home. But anyway, but, but the one that we think it is, is she, they have a falling out. She gets angry and she goes home to her father. And a good bit of time passes by and he decides, I'm gonna go and, and get her back. So he travels, the Levite, travels to the home, the father of the concubine. The father comes out of the unnamed woman and greets the unnamed Levite and welcomes him. And they have a party. They eat, they drink, they celebrate for one day. They eat and drink and celebrate for two days. They eat and drink and celebrate for three days. And on the fourth day, the, the, the Levite and the concubine have now made up and they are going to go back to their home, where they, their new home they had established, and uh, they're a little late getting started and the father-in-law talks them into waiting just a little bit longer and they eat and drink some more. And he says, well, you know, it's already late. Uh, why don't you just stay another night? So they stay another night. And, they, and you can get up, you can leave early in the morning. And they get up early in the morning, and guess what they do again? 
They eat and drink and party. And then it's late in the day and they're getting ready to go. And the father-in-law says, why don't you just stay one more day? All right, just stay one more day. And then you can get up and you can leave early in the morning. And they go, okay, that's what we'll do. So they get up on the, now the fifth day, early in the morning. And guess what they do again? They eat and drink and party and celebrate. It's, a, it's just funny to read. And then it's later in the day and the father-in-law says, why don't you wait and stay one more night? And the, and the Levite goes, no, we're not doing that again. We are leaving. So they're heading north from Bethlehem and they have to go through what is Jerusalem, though it's not called Jerusalem at that time now. They're going through Jerusalem and, uh, and, and they have a couple of donkeys with them and they have a servant anyway. And, and they go, why don't we stay in, in Bethlehem? And the Levite goes, no, we're not staying here. There are no Jews here. Uh, we don't know what's gonna happen. And so they keep traveling and they go to the next city and they're in the city square. Now remember, there are no holiday inns. Uh, it's, it's not, and, and typically the idea is uh, it's hospitality hospitality is incredibly important in the ancient world. And I want to to put a last, actually hospitality is incredibly important in the Middle Eastern world. And I'll just do a little side note here. I have not, I have not made many trips there. I've I've been to Israel and I have been to uh, Lebanon. And I cannot tell you, it's difficult to describe the hospitality I experienced in Lebanon from people who could speak very little English or none at all, not only were some of them not Christian, they were clearly committed Muslims who invited us into their home, who welcomed us, who fed us, who, I mean, who invited us to come back, um, we had church members who were with us, for example, Ron, who had been there before that, and we're back in some of those same communities. They recognize Ron. They're inviting you in. They, hospitality is incredibly important. It is so important. It is a deeply disturbing part of this story. I think it's supposed to be even disturbing to them that hospitality would go this far, that, that the choices that are made. But anyway, they are in the square of the, t- of the city and the or village and, and uh, this old man who has no name, this old man comes in and, and asks them what's going on and he said, no, no, one, no one has invited us to stay. And he goes, and, it, and we, have, we have hay for our donkeys and we have plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. Like they don't, have, they don't have to feed our animals, they don't have to feed us, but nobody has shown us hospitality. The implication is he is shocked and he invites them to their home and he feeds their beasts and invites them in. And there are a group of, and it's interesting how different translations do this, there are a group of, uh, of, of worthless men, worthless individuals, riotous men uh, who find out there's this foreigner who is there and they come and they demand that this man who has invited these outsiders into their home, that he takes the man and, and turns him over to them so they can abuse him and, and essentially rape him. Is, and and you, you can't do, I mean, that's not hospitality. You can't, you can't, and they threaten him and he can't do that. And this is where the story 
really starts uh, falling apart for us. And well, certainly for them, but our struggle with it. Um, the man offers to send his daughter out to them. Who has no name in the story. And they go, no. So the Levite takes his concubine slash wife and shoves her out the door and locks the door. And they abuse her all night long. And she crawls to the threshold of the door and when he opens the door in the morning, there she is. And he says, get up, let's go. And she's dead. And he takes her body and puts it on one of the donkeys and takes her home. And he takes out a knife and he cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends a piece of her body to every tribe and says, this is what's happened. And when the tribes hear about this and what happened in this one community, they are outraged. And there is a call to war and they call for representatives to come and they decide to go to war. Now, there are, there are several kind of interesting twists that happen in this where they go to this one location, Mizpah, and they are asking, God, are you going to bless us if we do this? And the answer that they get, and we're not told how, we're not told who, that's all, that's all there's a story, is yes. And so uh, they, they greatly outnumber the people of this one area, this one tribe. They greatly outnumber them, but they are defeated in the first battle. And they go back and they consult again. That did not go well today. Uh, should we go to battle? Yes, go. Yes, I'll be with you. And they go to battle the second day. And it is, they lose the second day too. And they, and they greatly outnumber the people they're fighting against. And finally, the third day, and they consult God again. Um, and we're not told how, we're not told who or, or what that means. But anyway, they, they get an answer again, an affirmative answer. And this time they are uh, a little more sophisticated in their strategy and they draw the enemy out away from the city. And when the enemy sees them running, they think, oh, well, we've, this is what happened the last two times. We have them on the run again, but they, they are led into a trap and, and they are defeated. And it's such, a, uh, it's such a complete defeat. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, one thing I forgot. When this poor woman is cut up and sent out, um, the tribes are so angry, they say, they, they take a vow, we will never give our daughters to those people again. Like that's, we will never agree to let our daughters marry them again. After that vow, after that battle, it kind of sets in on them. Um, we're going to lose an entire tribe. This is it. They're going to, 
It's not today, it's not tomorrow, but in a generation, they're gonna be done because we're not letting them marry our, our daughters. It's not gonna happen. Um, but what are we gonna do? You know, like, uh-oh. It's, like, it's almost like Jephthah, oh, I made that promise. I probably shouldn't have made that promise now, but I made this promise, what am I gonna do? And, and this is what they decide. They, they do a survey. Was there anybody who didn't show up at this? Was there any, anybody who didn't, didn't show up? Anybody? And they find this one region. Nobody from this region came out and fought. They go, all right, this is what we're going to do. Um, there's this festival that's coming up. And in this festival, all these young women who are unmarried come out into this field and they dance. So we're going to tell the young men of the tribe we have just tried to wipe out who are left. You show up this day and you hide around this field. And when these young women come out and dance, um, pick one out and take her home. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's that simple. Like just pick, like Mark, Mark says, go, yep, that's right. Yeah, like, like that happens every day. Yeah. Just pick one out and take her home. And when the parents say, wait a minute, we didn't agree to this and we said we aren't gonna give our daughters to any of them, we will tell them, you haven't broken your vow. You didn't give them, they took them. But just be courteous and kind. If we don't do this, we're gonna wipe out an entire tribe. And that's exactly what they do. That's the best way I can tell that story, all right? And, and yes, ma'am. Bride kidnapping still happens in some countries, yeah. Yeah. I read a book about from a woman who went there and yeah, they they kidnap her and then they take her like to the home and everybody's there and then they have a wedding. She she named off a couple of countries. Bride kidnapping still happens. They grab her, they go to the home, there's a wedding. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, themes from the final chapters. Let's take a look at it a couple of different ways. One, there's a slow but complete deterioration of spiritual Israel as progressed during the entire book of Judges. And, and we saw it at the beginning and I told you it's going to get worse. And once we get past that first group of Judges, it's a downward spiral. And part of what we have here is that it is, the writer is showing us this is completely out of control. And, and these people have no memory of the Mosaic Covenant, no, no memory of, of morality, of how they're treating each other. I mean, it is, it is really, and they just keep repeating that verses. There's no king in Israel, and everybody does what is right in their eyes. Which leads us to number two. Uh, there are many scholars who say the reason these epilogues have been added to Judges, they're really an introduction to what comes next. They're an introduction to tell you, wait a minute, let's really understand why they felt like they needed a king. Let's understand what's happening first. And this is how this is going to compare with David and David's reign and the, and, and the link that's going to happen that's going to begin there. Number three, there's an emphasis on what humans want. And when they pursue, or maybe you should say, when we pursue those wants that are contrary to God's ways, 
their lives run further away from fellowship with God. Often we have, and I say we, the church, we have, and, and we've presented God as, and Christianity as, here, here's a list of do's and here's a list of don'ts, and here's a list of rules, but we haven't talked about why. And so I go back to telling the story of God brings them out of Egypt, and then we have this incredible scene on the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and it's, this is how you've lived now for 400 years. Now let me show you how to live and stay free. Let me show you how to live in community. Let me show you how to... And so we, we keep forgetting to explain, wait a minute, this isn't a checkbox kind of thing God is doing. This is, I'm showing you how the creator has dreamed life to be, what is good for you, what is best for you, what is best for those around you, if you can embrace not just the rule, but why those are there and what happens. And what we see here is this incredible spiral out of control. Once they just walk away from that, how quickly they, it turns to violence and bloodshed. And I know it's part of the ancient world, but not always. And, and just how quickly they go back and forth between Yahweh when it suits their needs or, or, or when they finally have exhausted all other avenues and how willing God is to continue to love and reach out to them. And yet it just keeps falling apart. And then number four, the specific issues include idolatry, the insertion of self as the primary God and uncontrolled passions. Uh, the author of our study God does a very interesting thing here. Uh, and I did not expect this when I was reading and I thought, I wonder what he's gonna do, how he's gonna summarize these chapters. So he talks a little bit in this way and then he moves to a critique of our society. And, and what he's trying to do is to draw some parallels with help us build that bridge back to their world. But he starts talking about postmodern life. Now there's lots of debates about what it means to be postmodern. There's lots of debates about can you even say that when you're this close to what it, that time period may have been when we were living and how we were living. But he gives a list kind of like this where he says the world in which we live now reality is nebulous at best. Everybody is describing and redescribing how they live, and it's all related to their own perceptions and their own realities, their own experience. Um, we construct our reality, and, and quite frankly, uh, social media has not helped us in this avenue at all. We resist explanations that claim to be valid for all groups and cultures and traditions or races. The spotlight is instead on things like relative truth for each person, um, which brings us to the next one. Interpretation is everything. And we, we, we certainly see that playing out in the news all of the time. We rely on personal experiences over sweeping abstract principles. Um, we are convinced that many, if not all, apparent truths are only social derivations. And even, I'll, I'll confess for me, like, I believe there are things that are absolute truth. So by absolute truth, I mean, that's true for everybody at, in all cultures, at all times. I believe that. I don't know how to prove that. You see what I'm saying? I, like, I, I believe that. 
I even have some on my list of these are things that I believe are, I would put them in the category of absolute truth. Like this is true for all people at all times in all cultures. This is kind of a, an ethical expectation of what it means to be human in life. I don't know how to prove that. I mean, do I take a vote? Uh, is it a majority wins? It, you know, one culture says yes, one culture says no. So philosophically, Typically, you'll find even, even very serious uh, philosophers in this area who will say, yes, there is such a thing as absolute truth. We're not quite sure how to convince people what that is or, or how to prove those things. He starts listing off these things, and you don't have to go far before you go, wait a minute, this kind of sounds like them. Because the very last verse, they do it again. Seven times in this section, they say, in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That is the very last verse in Judges. A reminder and he's already done it again and again and again as kind of a it is not he's not bragging on it he's not recommending it it's just an evaluation this is how these people are living and this is what's happening to them so how do I read this on this side of Easter how do I read this horrible story? It's in my Bible because there have been times in Christian history where we have used this story and stories like this to justify violence or abuse or patriarchy. And quite frankly, this story stands in stark contrast to other biblical stories like Ruth or Hannah in 1 Samuel. So I'll just remind us that we are called as God's people to respond to evil. And these stories are included in the book of Judges, not as a recommendation of how you live, but as a characterization of people who have lost their way and who have forgotten what it means to be God's people who have been set free. So we have to always be careful about our response that it doesn't also become evil even as we fight evil. There's a clear message, not just about women, but about all who are powerless and voiceless. And what are we willing to risk for them? And what are we willing to give up for them? The biggest contrast, so I have, I'm, I'm shocked when I read the story as a father who is more concerned about hospitality that he would offer his daughter to these terrible people. I'm shocked. Then I'm shocked by this man who just shoves her out the door and then is outraged by what happens and cuts her up when he shoves her out the door to save his own life. Just shoves her out and locks the door so she can't get back in. So now I want to return to what Phyllis Tribble does with this and um, listen to the language, how she connects us with Jesus. The Christ event, and by that she means God in flesh coming to earth, the, the, the life teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the miracles, uh, the death and resurrection, all, all of that. The Christ event changes everything and becomes our lens for interpreting text and life, for interpreting good and evil. And then she moves to the New Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Many have speculated about what Jesus wrote. A Bible verse, sins of the crowd, names of the crowd. Maybe in some way Jesus was just drawing a line in the sand saying, no more, not on my watch. This cannot happen again. So we go out into a world and it's violent and people resort to violence and I have to watch the news through the lens of Jesus. I have to watch and read the newspaper through the lens of Jesus. I have to listen to people who are frustrated about a pandemic, frustrated about losing jobs, frustrated about uh, inconveniences in their life, frustrated about grief and loss and sickness. And we read that through the lens of Jesus and then ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? Let's pray. So Lord, we pray for those who die at the hands of others. We pray for those who find themselves in fearful situations and don't know how to respond. We pray for those who feel like their lives are out of control and anger is all they have left. We pray for those who feel like they are losing everything that feels normal and safe and secure. And they're lost. Will you give us your eyes that see behind the outward anger? Your ears that hear more than just name calling but can also see the pain and the fear. And would you give us wisdom to know what to say or not say, how to act, how to protect, how to love. We do not want to divide and conquer. We want to unite and change. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Amen. Thank you.